Welcome to the Preacher Girl Podcast. This is Diane Wright, and the talk today is entitled Shadows and Light, Leaning Toward Winter. It was first shared at St. John's Unitarian Church on November 7, 2010. The children's story for the service was The Monk's Heavy Load, a Buddhist story from the children's book called Kindness. One fine, warm spring day, two monks, one young and one old, were traveling to a village far from their monastery to do some trading. In the high mountains where they lived, there were only small trails between villages, no roads and few bridges. This spring had been especially warm. Winter's dense snow was melting quickly, and many streams had become too swollen and dangerous to cross. After walking a distance on a rugged, steep trail, the two monks came upon a fast-moving stream where a small young woman stood timidly on the bank, afraid to cross. The young monk reminded himself that as part of his religious training, he had vowed never to touch anyone of the opposite sex. He nodded to the young woman as he passed her by, lifted his monk's robe up slightly, and carefully began to negotiate the stream. But to his amazement, the elder monk sped right past him while carrying the young woman in his arms. When the old monk put her down on the far shore, she bowed respectfully to him in thanks. Not saying a word in reply, he gave her a bright, broad smile and went on his way. The young monk saw that the elder had continued on without him. With some effort, he finally managed to catch up, but as they walked on, he considered and considered and reconsidered the old monk's action back at the stream. With each passing mile, his thoughts grew angrier and angrier until hours later, he stopped in his tracks, flushed with rage. He shouted and sputtered at the old monk, "'You broke your sacred vows. You were never to touch a woman.' How can you forgive yourself? You should not be allowed back to our monastery. Surprised at this outburst, the old monk turned to face him. I dropped that woman hours ago, he said. Have you been carrying her all this time? The first reading is a story told by Judge Ollie Neal from Little Rock, Arkansas. When Mr. Neal was a high school senior, he was spending time in the school library because two pretty girls volunteered there, and he noticed an interesting-looking book by Frank Yerby, an African-American author, on the shelf. He said there was a risque picture of a woman on the cover, and that was enough to inspire him to read it. But he realized if he went to check it out, the girls would know he was reading, and it would ruin his reputation. He wanted everyone to think all he could do was fight and cuss. So he put the book under his jacket and walked out. He really enjoyed reading the book and brought it back a couple of weeks later, and when he went to put it back in the same place, there was another book by Frank Yerby. So he did the same thing and took it out underneath his coat. Twice more he brought the book back and found another by Frank Yerby and then another. And reading those first four books, he says, got him into the habit of reading. And he credits that as a turning point in his life, 
that enabled him to make it through law school. He eventually became a judge. Years after the library incidents, he was attending a high school reunion when Mrs. Grady, the teacher who had worked in the library, found him. She said she had seen him that day when he took the first book under his coat, and she said her first impulse was to go tell him he didn't have to steal the book, that he could take it out for free. But she said she thought for a minute and realized his predicament. So she conspired with another teacher, Mrs. Saunders, to make sure that there would be another book by Frank Yerby there for him if he brought it back. And he did. So they went again to purchase another and another. It was no small feat. They had to drive a long distance to a bookstore in Memphis to be able to find books by an African-American author. But they decided if that's what it took to get a boy to read, they wanted to do it. The second reading is a story told by Gregory Bateson, an anthropologist philosopher. Founded in 1379, New College, Oxford is one of the oldest Oxford colleges. It has, like other colleges, a great dining hall with huge oak beams across the top, as large as two feet square and 45 feet long each. A century ago, some busy entomologist went up into the roof of the dining hall with a penknife and poked at the beams and found that they were full of beetles. This was reported to the College Council, which met the news with some dismay. Beams this large were now very hard, if not impossible, to come by. Where would they get beams of that caliber, they worried. One of the junior fellows stuck his neck out and suggested that there might be some worthy oaks on the college lands. These colleges are endowed with pieces of land scattered across the country, which are run by a college forester. They called in the college forester, who of course had not been near the college itself for some years, and asked him if there were any oaks for possible use. He tugged on his hat and said, Well, sirs, we was wondering when you'd be asking. Upon further inquiry, it was discovered that when the college was founded, a grove of oaks had been planted to replace the beams in the dining hall when they became beetly, because oak beams always become beetly in the end. This plan had been passed down from one forester to the next for over 500 years, saying, You don't cut them oaks, them's for the college hall. picture has a shadow and it has a source of light. Happy birthday, Joni Mitchell. When I gather my thoughts to compose a talk, I always like to start with the date itself. And when I saw it was Joni Mitchell's birthday, I didn't need to look any further. My own history is spiced throughout with Joni Mitchell songs. And I know that I share that experience with others who joined me in church. And her songs, I guess like any song that you hear with your gut and your heart as much as your ears, sound different through the years because of what I bring to the hearing and how that changes as I grow and change. 
So I could fill a lot of time with sentimental stories of my own life through the lens of Joni Mitchell songs, but it seemed to me a better idea on this day when daylight savings time ends. No more saving the daylight, think about that, as our seasons teeter toward the winter and the cold, that Joni Mitchell's songs and life offer us a way to approach the topic of time and our interconnectedness. And ultimately, for me, it's a point of departure for considering the decisions I make each day about who I am in the world. Not too many years ago, a chapter of Joni Mitchell's life ended up in the spotlight. Shortly after coming to Toronto and beginning her life as a singer-songwriter, Joni had become pregnant. She lived in a boarding house, a struggling singer, across the hall from a man named Duke Redbird, who could hear her crying and singing. One day he and his brother gave her apples, and it was a gesture she apparently never forgot. Years later, when she saw Duke at a concert, she remembered the apples and asked him to extend the thanks to his brother. Joni Mitchell delivered a baby girl and made arrangements for adoption, an event that she chronicles in her song, Little Green. Many years later, both mother and daughter had attempted to find each other, but it wasn't until the daughter was 27 years old that she met a friend of Duke Redbird and the connections came full circle. The friend suggested her biological mother might be Joni Mitchell, and it turned out that was true. So in those 27 years, Joni Mitchell made music, lots of music, and I find myself wondering... I wonder about the experience of Duke Redbird across the hall as he listened to the songs and the tears. I wonder about the adoptive parents of the daughter who only knew that the daughter's biological mother was a folk singer. Like all of us, each person in this story traveled the seasons, watched the leaves change and fall. Well, maybe it's the time of year, and maybe it's the time of man. And I have to believe, because her music provided so much catharsis and healing for me, that Joni Mitchell found her own healing in music as well. The author Oliver Wendell Holmes said, Take a music bath once or twice a week for a few seasons, and you will find that it is to the soul what the water bath is to the body. And so we bathe. And the seasons, they go round and round, and the painted ponies go up and down. And year after year, we become more acutely aware of the gift of each season. Writer Fred Plotkin, an expert on Italian food, talks about a unique tradition in Italy. In true Italian food, there is a great emphasis on locally grown, fresh ingredients, and that means there's a special attention paid to the seasons and the various fruits and vegetables that ripen and become available at specific times. And at the beginning of a season, when, for example, an Italian takes the first bite of their first apricot of the season, they say a prayer called the primizia. The prayer gives thanks for this food, 
for the season coming around again, the harvest coming through, the gift of the special taste of this food that can only be enjoyed for a short while. I found out about the Primitia this year, and the idea struck me deeply, and the word itself became that prayer for me. I found myself this autumn at the sight of a tree newly ablaze, whispering, Primitia, at the taste of the first apple cider from the farmer's market, Primitia, at the first bite of squash, Primitia. It's a beautiful punctuation of life's narrative, a moment in time celebrated. The look of my son's face in the autumn sun, Primitia. A kiss under the full moon, Primitia. The echo of my steps when I come into a sanctuary early before a service, Primitia. The story I shared this morning about the beams in the dining hall of the new college comes to us from the Long Now Foundation. The innovators at the Long Now Foundation are busy building the Clock of the Long Now, a clock-slash-monument they're planning to build on a mountaintop in eastern Nevada. The Clock of the Long Now is being designed to run for 10,000 years. The mission behind the clock, the goal of its designers, is to entrance, and they use that word, entrance, us into thinking beyond the short term and beyond the scope of our own lives and our own tribes. The three-story structure will be powered by the changes in temperature between night and day, and the chimes on the clock will play a different musical phrase every day for 10,000 years. The phrases were composed by a group that includes musician and producer and hero of mine, Brian Eno. And so, to construct this clock, the engineers and designers have to think in a way we don't normally think as we construct things. They have to consider location, materials, maintenance, all within the context of our imperfect images and understanding of a distant future. I love the clock of the long now for so many reasons, beyond my dream of a pilgrimage to this remote mountaintop. I love it because to dream of this clock, one must pull that tight taffy of our brains in a new direction. If in the dream of this clock, I find a new personal dream, a dream of a great-great-great-great-granddaughter who might travel and make her own pilgrimage to that mountaintop, I am led by that personal dream to make decisions in a way that will support continued life on our planet. Within the context of my own imperfect images and theories and understanding of a distant future, I must begin sharing that story with the generation that follows mine in a way that respects and inspires them so that they tell it again and again and again. So many lives we live all at once and within which we make choices about who we are. In our inner life, will we be the one who carries that load way beyond the river? Or will we be the one who sets it down at the water's edge? In the life of our here and now, 
Will we be the one who complains to the landlord about the music? Or the one who hears the songs and tears and comes across the hall with the comfort of apples? In the life of our hopes for the short-term future, when we see the boy stealing a book, will we be the one who calls him out in front of the pretty girls? Or will we respond by making sure three more books are ready to feed his new appetite for reading. And in the life of our vision of the future of our planet, will we nurture our hope and strength to plant new oak trees and envision our descendants listening to the chimes of the clock of the long now? All these lives, like the poem from Rilke's Book of Hours, Ich lebe meine Leben in wachsenden Ringen, I live my life in widening circles. We go round and round and round in the circle game. Thanks for tuning in to the Preacher Girl podcast. Many thanks to Stephen Grant Smith, the sound engineer for this episode, whose music appears in this episode, and you can hear more of his music on Amazon.com. There are more Preacher Girl episodes available at Podbean.com or through iTunes. As always, feed your spirit, live in love.